The other day, one of my children had finally pushed Karen too far. That's it. Get in the bathroom. Your father can deal with you. I heard those words from my office, and I knew that my poor wife had finally reached her limits. Now, there are many things that I love about being a father. I love watching my children succeed. I love encouraging them and seeing them overcome obstacles. I love watching their faith mature. I love to hear them sing. I love to watch them grow and develop. I love comforting them. I love leading them. I love to give them things. I love to watch them read, and I love how they use their imaginations. I love getting hugs, and I love giving hugs. But there are also some things that I don't love about being a dad. As the father in the house, it often falls to me to be the enforcer. Now, make no mistake, Karen does her fair share of disciplining our children. They know that she is an authority. But for any of you that know us, it is also pretty clear which of us is the more intimidating. Which of us is scarier. And it's dad. And so I got up, walked over to Karen, got briefed on the situation. My son was being disrespectful to his mother. Now, nothing triggers me more than when my kids are being disrespectful to their mother. I go from zero to raging in about two heartbeats. So after my briefing, I entered the bathroom. Many of us know what it's like to have to bring discipline Many of us have had the burden of authority. We get it. But I would hazard a guess that even more of us know what it's like to be bracing ourselves for the reception of discipline. I remember growing up, I was exceptionally good at pushing my poor mother's buttons. Often I'd be pushing them without even realizing that I was doing it. I was, and still in some ways, incredibly stubborn. I also had a very quick wit and a tongue to match, and since I was also pretty lazy and focused on having everyone else do the things that I didn't want to do, I would often argue with my mom about anything that she wanted me to do. I'm sure that at the time, in my head, I had some pretty good reasons for it, but at the end of the day, the bottom line would be that in arguing with her, I would undoubtedly cross the line somewhere, and she would run out of patience, and I would end up in my room with the phrase, you just wait till your father gets home ringing in my ears. Man, I hated that weight. There are many times that I would try to convince myself that I hadn't earned my punishment. I would double down on my stubbornness and refuse to believe that I had done anything wrong. I was the offended party here. I was the one who was being mistreated. But there were other times that after some time to think, I would realize, yeah, I'd cross the line. Maybe jumped over the line. Maybe set up camp on the other side of the line. I'd done what I shouldn't have done. I was guilty as charged, and the only course of action I had left was to apologize to my mother. Repent of the sin and disrespect that I had shown her, and pray that my father would listen and hear my confession, and that he would have mercy. Anyone else relate to that? Understand where... Coming from there, can you remember a time when you were just waiting for the hammer to fall? 
Can you remember a time when you were just waiting for judgment, a judgment that you knew you had earned, that you deserved? And your only course of action is to wait for the authority to show up and to hope that they would have mercy. That's where the people of Nineveh find themselves in our text this morning. We pick up with the story after Jonah has just spent three days in the belly of the whale. God's means of rescuing Jonah from Sheol, from the death and the depths that had trapped him, unable to escape on his own. And now he has been vomited up by this fish, deposited onto dry land. And that's where we pick up this morning by reading Jonah chapter 3. We read the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise in your name. Amen. So Jonah makes his way to Nineveh. From the coast of the Mediterranean, this is, this is about like a 500-mile journey, and it probably took him somewhere between a month and 45 days to make the trek by caravan. Finally, he is at this great city, and man, this puppy's huge. Our text this morning tells us that it takes three days to walk the entire metropolitan area that Nineveh influenced. And so Jonah enters the city and begins to proclaim the word of the Lord. Now, there are many times in the Bible that we see a prophet confronting a wayward people and their king. Jeremiah confronted Jehoiakim. Moses opposed Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Elijah challenged Ahab, just to name a few in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we see this as well with John the Baptist's rebuke of the adulterous Herod and Paul standing before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. There's a few more examples. In many of these instances, prophet rebuking king and people, the message of the prophet is, is lengthy and impassioned. He and his message are often either completely ignored or angrily rejected. And then we have this strange sight in Nineveh. A surprising reversal of the common scene. Jonah is wandering around the city, not speaking to anyone in particular. 
Not demanding to be seen by the king, but just wandering aimlessly. And his message is not long. It's one simple sentence, and it doesn't even carry any instruction. He's just wandering around Nineveh saying, hear this. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. That's his half-hearted proclamation. Listen to this. In 40 days, Nineveh will fall. (laughs) What? He doesn't offer any instruction. He doesn't provide a reason for the coming calamity. The only thing that he makes clear is the coming judgment. The rest, he leaves incredibly murky. He's being as vague as possible. He doesn't even call the people to repentance. What kind of lame prophetic message is this? You want proof that God is working on the hearts of the unsaved? You want proof that God can speak to the heart of those that do not yet have faith in Him or are being stubborn? Look no farther than Jonah 3. Jonah's doing everything he can to be as vague as possible because even though he had his own little moment at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, even though he had his own experience with God's grace as he was saved from the depths, he still doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. And so he is doing what God is calling him to do. He's fulfilling the call that God gave to him, but he's doing it in the least effective way possible. He's walking around the city preaching a five-word sermon. It's five words in the Hebrew. We add a few more in English just so that we can make sense of it. But the gist of the message is, destruction is coming. And that's it. You want proof that the Lord is preparing the heart of your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving neighbor? How did the people of Nineveh respond to this incredibly vague and horribly communicated message? With repentance. They responded with repentance. Their hearts were changed. The people began to put itchy, uncomfortable sackcloth on on for clothes. They covered their faces with ashes, the traditional attire of mourning, and began to weep and repent. The king caught wind of this five-word sermon, and he got down off his throne, and he also donned sackcloth and ashes and sent forth a royal decree that not only should the people of Nineveh fast in repentance, not only should the people not eat or drink anything, but neither should their animals. And then taking it a step further, he also decreed that the animals joining the repentant morning and be put in sackcloth as well. The king told all of his people to stop their wickedness. He called the people to turn from their evil ways, to stop hurting each other. These are the people of Nineveh. These are the people who made a name for themselves by hurting each other. It's what they do. It's part of their DNA. It's their identity. And here is the king calling his people to stop and to turn and to repent. And then we get get a glimpse into the mind of the king. Who knows, he says. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
Maybe God will have mercy on us. Maybe God will not bring the calamity, the destruction, the judgment that is coming. Maybe God will change his mind. All of this from a five-word sermon. You guys are probably sitting there thinking, Pastor, maybe you should follow in some of Jonah's footsteps. Five-word sermon sounds pretty nice sometimes. An entire city on their knees repenting because of a five-word, half-hearted sermon. That is the work of God. That is the work of God. Why? Why did God do all this? Why did God work in the hearts of the Ninevites? Why did God call the Israelite prophet Jonah to go to his enemy and to give them a message? God's been setting this thing up from the beginning. From the first verses in the book, we see God working and moving towards this end. Hounding Jonah while working on the hearts of the Ninevites. This people did not deserve or earn any of the grace and mercy that they were given. They were not part of Israel, the chosen people. And yet Matthew 12, 41 tells us that these people of Nineveh, this generation was saved and shall rise along with all the other believers on the last day. Why? Why? Because even though they were not part of the chosen people, even though they were Gentiles and living outside the promise of God, and even though they were horrible, immoral people, they were still people. They were still people that were made in the image of God, and God loved them. God loved them in spite of their flaws, in spite of their sin, in spite of their failings, and yet even even though his love was so great, He knew that terrible consequences had been earned. He knew that judgment needed to be brought. But God's love for his people gave him reluctance. God was reluctant to bring judgment. And so instead, he sent Jonah. He sent Jonah to proclaim the message that God gave to him, that the people might hear it. That they might have a change of heart. That they would recognize their sin. Recognize their need. And that they would repent. I remember walking into the bathroom that day. My son was sitting on the floor with his face in his hands. He wasn't crying yet. But his face was long. And his breathing was a little ragged. And as I closed the door behind me. He removed his hands from his face. And he looked up into my eyes. Dad, why do I do things like this? He asked me. I'm so bad. I wish I could stop doing bad things, but sometimes I can't. I know I shouldn't do them, but I I do them anyway. His voice trailed off. I let him sit in silence for a little while, and then I asked him what he had done. He told me how he felt Karen had been unfair to him. And how that had made him so mad, he lost control of his mouth. He said that he knew he needed to apologize to his mother. What was I to do? Bring the punishment that he had earned? Sure, he was repentant now, but shouldn't there be punishment for what he had done? 
Didn't he need to feel the bite, the sting of discipline? I moved over to my son, knelt down next to him, and gave him a big hug. I held him for a while, and after I let him go and told him how much I love him and that I'm proud of him, I told him that I forgive him and that he has been forgiven by God and that he should go and seek forgiveness from his mother. And then I sat in that bathroom for a while, thinking about the exchange. I had no desire to punish my son. It doesn't bring me any pleasure to see my children hurt and cry. It doesn't bring me any joy to dispense justice. The enforcer is not a fatherly hat that I particularly enjoy wearing. I wish the role came without it. I love these kids. They are mine. They have been entrusted to me by God, and because they have been entrusted to me, it is my responsibility to raise them well, and sometimes that means curbing their behavior by enforcing discipline. But man, my love for my children causes me to be reluctant in bringing judgment, and so I tend to find myself threatening judgment in the hopes that I won't have to bring it. You better go to sleep, because if I have to come up those stairs, you're going to get it. And so God threatened the people of Nineveh through the words of the reluctant prophet Jonah because he was reluctant to bring judgment on this people that he loved. He did not want to bring the judgment that they had earned, that they deserved. God's ultimate purpose for Nineveh was grace and mercy, not judgment. And God's ultimate purpose for you is grace and mercy and not judgment. Can you hear that this morning? Are you in a place where you can realize, where you can grasp, where you can understand that God's purpose for you is not to condemn you, but to show you grace and mercy? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes life is not going the way that we want it to go. It's not moving in a positive direction. And we wonder why God has let whatever is going on go on. Why he's letting it happen. In these situations, I'm reminded of the movie Bruce Almighty. There's there's this scene in the movie where Bruce is not happy with his current situation in life. And he goes on a rant against God in which he says, God is just a mean kid with a magnifying glass and I'm an ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. When we are going through hard things, when we feel like everything is aligned against us, including God, when we don't understand why he isn't bringing the rescue that we want or expect, let us remember his ultimate purpose for us. His ultimate purpose is not to ensure that our life goes the way that we want it to. His ultimate purpose for us is not to cater to our whims or to make us comfortable here on earth. His ultimate purpose is not to act in the ways that we expect him to. His ultimate purpose for us lies rooted in eternity. His ultimate purpose is forever. And God's ultimate purpose, his ultimate plan, his ultimate desire is to show you grace and mercy and not judgment. God is reluctant to bring judgment. 
But judgment has to be brought, right? God, while being a God of love and mercy, is also a just God. Sin must be punished. It can't just disappear. It can't be ignored. God's very nature will not allow it. And so God sent us Jesus, his son. And on Jesus, he piled all of the sin that we do, the lying, the cheating, the adultery, the perverse talk, the lust, the rage, the envy, the disrespect that we show our mothers. And Jesus carried all of this mess up that hill to Calvary. And there he took the judgment of God in our place. In our place, Jesus was separated from God so that through faith in him, we would not be. And then he died. And on the third day, he rose again. And when we believe this, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe in his death and his resurrection and our need of it, then we are covered by Jesus so that when the Father sees us, he doesn't see our sin and our filth. Instead, he sees his perfect son and we are reconciled to God through faith. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, our sentence of death, the judgment that we earned is canceled and God's wrath averted. God's verdict for us who believe is that we are made right before God, seen without flaw or shame, and given everlasting life. I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord, whether like Jonah, you are a sinner saint that has a relationship with God but fails him continually. Or you are like the Ninevites, and you are doing your own thing and don't really want anything to do with God. Wherever you are in your relationship with him, know this, God loves you. And God is reluctant to bring judgment. He longs for you to be in relationship with him. And there is nothing that he hasn't already forgotten. As we embrace this truth, as we bask in the wonderful grace of God, let us stand together this morning and confess our sin our need of Christ, and our need of God's grace. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your condemnation. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will. Church, friends. The Bible tells us that when we confess our sins, God is graceful. He is merciful and he is just. And he has forgiven us. So hear this this morning. You are forgiven. You are forgiven.